This is Ford Exchanges by Neom. What's next in moving money around the world, one global conversation at a time. Hello, and welcome to Forward Exchanges from Neom, bringing you the latest insights into the fast-emerging changes in global payments. I'm Siobhan O'Neill Schwenk, and on this podcast, we are joined by trailblazers and veteran players in the industry to investigate the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and learning what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. So whether you're new to global payments, a digital transformation veteran, or you just want to hear some great advice on what strategies create momentum in the global digital payments revolution, then this is the podcast for you. Traditionally, women have been underrepresented in the fintech space, accounting for less than 10% of leadership positions. And while that number has been slowly climbing, there's still a lot of work to be done to not only increase participation, but also advance women in fintech. So joining me now to talk about this important topic, as well as tell us about the challenges and successes they've encountered throughout their careers in fintech, is the VP of Customer Success for Europe at Neom, Jill Doherty, and the Senior Vice President of Strategy Transfer Solutions at MasterCard, Rasika Reina. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hey, Siobhan. Thank you. Rasika, I'd like to start with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself and, and your role today. I'm actually from MasterCard, so I actually... I'm responsible for strategy for a part of MasterCard called Transfer Solutions. And this is the division that's responsible for processing disbursements and remittances globally. And I've been in the payments domain for about, what, 10, 15 years, I think. Um, I started my career at uh, the United Nations and uh, moved on into the private sector, again in the payments domain. So I've been around, I think, for a good amount of time in the space. Jill, tell me a little bit about you. So I lead customer success for Europe at Neom. So what is customer success? Basically, all of our existing customers need someone to nurture commercially that partnership. And that's really the responsibility of myself and my team to really understand customers' priorities, needs, pain points, and hopefully look to solve those. That's really what the team does. We have a host of customers, one of which is MasterCard, and we also have some travel customers, so both OTAs and a fair number of enterprises for our payout business too. As we approach the topic of women in fintech and the best ways to increase our numbers in this space, I think it's important to tell our stories, to show others that they can achieve great things. They can achieve whatever they want in this industry as well. So I wanted to take a few moments for each of you to tell us a little bit about your journey into fintech. Rasek, I'll start with you. I literally stumbled into fintech at a time when we didn't know we were fintech. I have a very eclectic background, having dabbled in some interesting stuff at a multilateral agency before making the move to private sector. I was fortunate enough to land in payments domain. That was about a decade back, and the excitement hasn't stopped since. So mine, similarly, I don't think it was by design. I think I'm a marketing grad and perhaps naturally ended or started my career working in professional services in global advertising agencies. And I think for me, as I look back and reflect, I really created this adoration, respect and, and love for consumers and serving consumers. Obviously, the product or the solution and the service is quite different as we looked to drive the communication element about brands and services to consumers. I think 
at the heart of what I've always done throughout my career, while it's been quite different, it's always been about making sure consumers are served if there's an unmet need. My journey was, I actually worked at MasterCard for 11 years. So I left a Marcom's background and joined an organization a year after the IPO. It was a very relatively small organization back then, 3,000 employees globally. And I joined them in a Marcom's capacities. And through MasterCard, I was able to move to Asia. And then I evolved out of a subject matter expert into more of a commercial lead, still in a customer-facing role, but looking after P&L. And I got to, to lead some really big pieces of business when I was at MasterCard. I left MasterCard for 11 years. I loved my journey with them. And I continued through another payments organization where I got my first taste of fintech. I actually led the fintech issuers, which was super exciting. And there was this array of new customers that had very different needs and priorities and demands on the business. So at the beginning of last year, I took the very bold move of deciding that I was going to give up my 15 plus years of corporate experience and jump into a fintech. And I had a little bit of a break through the European summer. And then I was fortunate enough to the opportunity to, to join Neom and lead the customer success team here. So I think it's really interesting. And our products lead the way. Our products are servicing those end customer needs, whether it's you know, facilitating a B2B travel payment, whether it's in, enabling someone to remit funds cross-border. I think we're ultimately still solving customer pain points around security and speed and transparency. I was drawn to fintechs because they had a strong purpose. They really wanted to use technology as the catalyst to serve those customer needs. And they move fast. They didn't have some of the incumbency risks and issues that bigger organizations were facing. So I felt immediately attracted by them. So that's what really kind of keeps me here. And it's very exciting. Jill, I hear all of this wonderful passion in your voice about sort of voice of the customer and putting yourself in the customer's shoes. Rosika, where was your passion point when you came to fintech? I'm just curious. When your feet hit the ground every morning and the devil says, shoot, she's up. Like, what's that thing in for you in fintech? I came from like a multilateral space, right? So in the payments domain, I helped build a disbursement service in the United Nations when I was working there in the treasury part of the business. So when I was in the multilateral agency, I was on the, what we call the demand side. So I had my pain points. I had, you know, processes to build to and um, banks were my vendors, really. So when I moved into the private sector, I moved on the other side of the space. It was very, I think, enriching for me simply because I could now design processes and products for the experiences and the pain points that I'd experienced when I was on the demand side, on the treasury side. So it was a fascinating journey, right? To kind of build a product to a pain point that I knew existed. I was very passionate about it because it gave me an opportunity to like speak for all the industry that used the payment payments products. But having said that, in MasterCard, I was thinking how ironical it is that Jill came from a MasterCard background, but worked in an account-to-account -account, uh, remittance company and her experiences, whereas I'm working in, the, in MasterCard and actually working on account-to-account -account payment products. So when we came to, uh, when we joined um, MasterCard, it was about five, six, seven years back, actually, cross-border payments were not really 
something that MasterCard was known for, unless they were on the card rails, right? So we kind of made an effort and set this business up in MasterCard, right, from inception. So we were like the startup, fintech startup within MasterCard. And just seeing that product grow, seeing that business grow to what it is today, it's, uh, it's a huge business. We have like 250 financial institutions as customers. We are present in about seven uh, regions of the world. It's growing at a steady clip, about 50% annually. So just seeing that business come to maturity over the last few years, I think that's, uh, you know, that makes your day and uh, wants, makes you want to come to work every single day. I love that. When it comes to growing and shaping careers, I know in my own career and that for many of my friends, mentorship has played a really integral role. Have either of you had mentors either within MasterCard or within a previous role that really helped you sort of grow and shape your career? For me, I've had many. I normally keep prior leaders as mentors because I think you establish a working relationship with them. And generally, if you work with them for a reasonable amount of time, you build the trust, you build the vulnerability. And to your point, they kind of get to know you quite well. They get to know the great Jill, like the Jill when she's on fire and she's having her best day, but then the Jill that's not having the best day and how that kind of resonates and how everyone feels around that. So I think what I've done is I've kind of harnessed some of those leaders that I've worked for. And if they've left the organization, I've taken it upon myself. If there has been good chemistry, like I think there's really got to be chemistry and maybe that's one thing to add in a mentor relationship. You've got to be able to be yourself, like warts and all, as you've said, like you've got to be able to talk openly. You've got to be able to trust that what you say is going nowhere else and that they will reciprocate with you and talk to their experience, warts and all. So I've kind of found myself, fortunately, with about three or four deep mentors that are, are not paid, but they've all kind of got the similar characteristics that they previously, I've worked for them, they've been a leader of mine. And I call on them when I'm needing kind of help, help with choosing new roles. I'm at a segue. I don't know how to approach it having trouble in current role, dealing with a new style of a new leader, and just having a fluid conversation. By and large, they become friends as well. And it's just kind of fluid conversation about what's happening and what's top of mind for me. And they challenge my thinking, I think, which is really good. They don't agree with everything I say. And they just kind of help me on my way. I'd say it's, it's just a guide to kind of give you another perspective. The good mentors are not biased. I think they, they'll tell you, like, you're being a bit silly uh, or you've got to think about X, Y, and Z. And then on the paid mentorship, maybe more coaching, I've done a ton of that too. And I would advocate for that as well. We have, I've really had things that I couldn't overcome um, within myself, potentially development areas, where I've had to kind of search deep and actually get professional advice to say, how do I do this? And it particularly, it becomes, for me, became, as I became more senior, leading bigger and bigger teams, dealing with some of those pieces to get the best out of people as we lead them, as we grow them, as we develop them. So that's my experience. I couldn't have done it without my mentors. 
I have been fortunate enough to have many individuals who've provided that guidance and support at various stages in my journey. I've benefited from the differing perspectives and experiences that I've had with these guys. And I, I don't think many of my mentors knew that they were men mentoring me, really. They've led by example and have kind of subconsciously and consciously tried to embed that in my work ethic. I think one of the big things that for me, it's not just that some of my mentors have taught me how to succeed. But uh, the mentors who've taught me how to deal with failure, I think that has been very, very, how shall we say, rewarding, and that I found it really rewarding in my career. And I found mentors not just at my workplace, I have found mentors outside my workplace. I think the value that they bring, right, from their own lived experiences, I think that is something which I really cherish. And it's practical, it's pragmatic, right, to kind of experience that, not go down the path that somebody has gone down that path and had results which probably they did not intend to have, right? So you learn from those experiences. I can't even count the number of people who, most of my managers, I've been remarkably lucky in the managers I've had in my career. And most of my managers, frankly speaking, have been have had some sort of that impact on my work style and on my work ethic. I love that. I'm going to turn the corner a little bit here to something that we hear a lot about when we talk about women, not just in technology, but women at work in general. We're going to talk about the dreaded imposter syndrome. And Jill, I was intrigued by this little tidbit that I discovered in a rap report from the June Money 2020 conference. Author Marilla Chibano mentioned, and I quote here, some of the advice that you had shared during Rise Up on how to love your imposter. But she didn't expand on it, though. And I think as women, we can most of us can probably agree that we feel some degree of it somewhere in our lives, whether it's personal or it's at work. KPMG reported last year that 75% of executive women across industries feel some level of it. What did you mean by love your imposter? I think for me, when I felt imposter syndrome, and maybe just taking a step back, I mean, I think for me, I categorize imposter where I don't feel like necessarily I've got a seat at the table, or it feels very kind of alien at times. I'm kind of maybe haven't asked the question or haven't voiced exactly my opinion because I've been fearful that I don't fit in or, you know, is my does my opinion really matter? So that's kind of for me how I think about it without kind of looking up whatever the definition of imposter is. That's my personal kind of, how it personally resonates with me. I think back to every time I feel imposter and it's real, as I said, like I've done a couple of roles, I've lived in a few places and it doesn't go away. So I think like acceptance is for me something that I've come to terms with. But why I say I think you've got to love it, it means for me that you're learning and that you're growing. And actually, I've been listening to quite a lot of podcasts about this that are actually gender neutral, but I think it, we know that it, it over impacts women. But think about imposter where it's not something that's paralyzing you. It's just something within you that you are conscious of because it's something you haven't done before. And therefore, there may not be an immediate solution that you're familiar with or your experience kind of doesn't immediately allow you to solve this problem. And I think what it's that age old thing of you're outside your comfort zone. And ultimately, when I feel imposter and I know the triggers because I've kind of like I've taken a conscious decision to understand the triggers of when I feel it, it means I'm in an environment, in a situation doing something that I'm uncomfortable with, 
probably for the first time, and I'm not sure. And I think that if we embrace imposter and we love it and we say, actually, this is a feedback mechanism to myself that I'm doing something that I could, I'm growing in because I'm learning, I think it's just about creating a format where people are more comfortable talking about it and there's more visibility and awareness. But I think there's got to be a level of acceptance of it and you've got to embrace it and love it because it does mean that you're outside the zone and you're doing something and you're creating something magical that's helping you learn and grow. Prasika, do you have an inner imposter or at least an occasional inner detractor or little voice? Of course. Uh, I think um, acknowledging that the imposter exists and exists for a lot of women is the first step in dealing with it, right? Understanding that we are not alone, that it's a very common experience kind of helps a lot. Actually, if you ask me, I really believe that it's, uh, it's good to have a healthy amount of paranoia about your capabilities. And that helps you grow and evolve as an individual. Because if I was like very smug about like, I know everything, then of course, you're never going to grow as an individual. But on the other side, if you have persistent self-doubt, it can really cripple your ability to perform and take decisions. I mean, every time I change my role, I change my job. I mean, for the first one or two months when I just do not know what the heck's happening, yes, of course, I'm very, that imposter's alive and kicking, right? But um, it just, once you settle down and you realize that you can do it, you kind of come to terms with it. So it's, it's a cycle, right? It's a cycle that we have to go through with it. But as I said, you cannot obsess over it because if you let it take over, then you know, you're going to have a problem because you're not going to be able to perform. And it's then whatever your worst fears come true because you are enabling your worst fears to come true. So acknowledge it, deal with it, and move on, really. This next may not surprise either of you. The IMF put out a report in 2022 called Women in Fintech as Leaders and Users, and they stated that women hold less than 25% of board seats in banks and bank supervision agencies, and they account for about 5% of bank CEOs globally. And in addition to that, the FinTech Diversity Radar Report notes that women who make up roughly half of the world population are only at CE level 6% of FinTechs and even less, 4% are in the key technology roles of CIO or CTO, Chief Information or Chief Technology Officer. And then this part might surprise you. There is a positive relationship between having more women on executive boards and the revenue earned by the respective fintech firms, as well as the funding that they receive for future investments. 10% higher share of women on executive boards is associated with a roughly 13% higher revenue and funding earned by a firm. For every dollar of funding received, women-founded fintechs generate 78 cents in revenue, while male-founded fintechs generate just 31 cents. I thought this sounded pretty solid, and I was curious about each of your takes on this and how each of you has come to understand how your own role has helped contribute to how women in our industry are working to lift others up and lift revenue up directly or indirectly. I think specifically it might be about sensitivity to the underbanked or ESG or sustainability Jill, I'll start with you. What's your take on how women bring a higher level of performance, it seems, to financial technology? I think some of my view is, is a lot of the barriers to entry were made significant because 
men were employing men because they were kind of leading banks, and then it just kind of amplified. So until we had some of the DNI kind of um, parameters, and we looked at the revenue, and we looked at kind of the gender makeup, none of this really got unpacked. To your point, like the research is there, both in financial services and the research you just suggested now, or the data that you just suggested now for fintech is there, that the earning potential and the investment potential is significantly more when you have a more gender diverse organization and, and leadership team. Um, like, what are we doing at NIEM? I mean, the first thing I did when I arrived, and I can't take full credit for this because the team that was here already had actually packaged up uh, the program. They really needed someone um, to take it to market, is we've launched Women at NIEM. Um, and we've started to have the dialogue and engagement about what DNI means for NIEM and how we will approach it through a learning and development point of view, through men mentoring, informal and, and formal, and through sponsorship. And we actively are looking at the slate when we recruit people. We're making sure our job breaks are more gender neutral as they're written. Um, and we're making sure our interview panel is more diverse. We got work to do. It would be a miss for me to sit here and sit, say we've got this, but we are looking hard to attract across the board, whether it's product or whether it's commercial roles and sales or customer success, we're looking to attract a more gender diverse group of individuals with the relevant experience. And we're not looking to change our expectations for any of those roles. And I've certainly seen that, that a lot of teams that I've led previously would tell me, oh, there are no women so there's a hundred excuses in the book on why it can't be done, but there are great women. And I think we've just got to, we got to find them. We've got to make sure that we're attracting them through the right channels. We've got to make sure we're using the right words and adjectives and descriptions of our roles, and they're not too biased and too male dominant. So I think there's, there's work to do, but I know it's a serious priority for Niam and we're on a journey. Rosika, I wanted to get your take on this, maybe from a slightly different angle, since I know that your biggest business is a remittance business and it's focused largely on the unbanked or the underbanked. Is that a fair characterization? And we know that typically the unbanked or the underbanked tend to overwhelmingly be women, regardless of geography. I was just curious as to how in your current role, if you sort of see the pain points and sort of see your role as being able to help lift that up a little bit. Remittances are a very complex area, right? And surprisingly, it's a very, you would think, an easy enough payment flow, but it has immense complexity. And we have acknowledged that complexity, right? We acknowledge that there are people, there are women especially who are unbanked, underbanked, and about 50 to 60% of remittances are still routed to those women. So it's like your spouse, your husband is working in like, say, the Middle East and, uh, you know, you are taking care of the kids at home and money is coming through. So we have actually made cash, which is surprising for a company like MasterCard. We have actually supported cash as a payout option for these people. We have supported mobile wallets, uh, extensive mo mobile wallet co coverage as a payout option for these individuals. And we do this at nominal prices and it's made a difference, right? At the same time, MasterCard has a goal of kind of digitizing about financially including about 1 billion individuals over the coming years. So one of the big things that we want to do 
as a part of this exercise is figure out how can we digitize the people who are in this cash economy? How do we get them to have more control over the financial freedom, right? Ultimately, financially free women are empowered women. They are the women who can use more financial services because they have access to digital economy. So this is something that MasterCard, especially the transfer solutions part of MasterCard, which processes remittances and disbursements, that is our goal. And we are seeing that steady decline from cash and how we are seeing digital payout methods actually going up. It is slow, but it's steady. So beyond encouraging more women to enter fintech, retention can also be a challenge. And I was curious, now that each of you has had a variety of career experiences in this space, what do each of you think could be done to encourage more women to pursue experience in technology and fintech? And what do we as an industry need to do to keep us around? I think McKinsey actually released an article recently that spoke around the biggest reasons for attrition of women. And this was not across any particular sector, but I think it is about learning and development and ultimately career growth. And I would agree with that. If I think about any roles that I've done in the past, and I think about my reason for wanting to stay or leave, it's mainly been about, am I learning? Am I growing? And then there was another piece of research I read as well, where a lot of managers today don't promote on potential. And because women are probably more risk, and this is a general stereotype, but generally women aren't as kind of outward in terms of what they've achieved in the past. And they perhaps aren't as open to talking about what their potential is. They may get overlooked for those promotion opportunities. So we need to make sure like in any organization, whether it's fintech or a mid-size or, or, or large public company, that we're really identifying our top performers, that we've got a succession plan for them, and that they don't move into that kind of attrition, high-risk, flight-risk kind of bucket. And the onus is on the organization and the leader, I would say, and being able to have those honest conversations to say, you know, are you going to leave? Are you feeling satisfied? Is this role delivering to your expectations? That would be kind of my advice and kind of my observation. Rasika, what's been your experience? It's my experience is kind of pretty similar. One of the things that I noticed, and this is a personal experience as well, is that women, when I hire men and women both, my experience with men has is that they will actually negotiate. They'll negotiate their salaries, they'll negotiate their roles, they'll keep negotiating, they'll try to get the best deal out of that, out of everything, right? Women, on the other hand, seem to be very accepting of what is actually given to them. So they start at a disadvantage at the outset, right? And I feel compelled to, you know, tell them, why aren't you negotiating, right? Because I see your peers do it. And most of the women that I've worked with are phenomenal women. I mean, they're smarter than most of their peers, frankly speaking, but they start at a, at a disadvantage. And then it can be very demotivating for them when they realize the pay gap that they have with their peers. And sometimes it's demotivating enough for them to exit the industry and find some other opportunities where this cycle actually keeps perpetuating. I think it's really important for us to start early with women before they actually come into the workspace to actually have these conversations with girls. How do you become more successful? How do you network? How do you negotiate with your employers? I mean, 
for example, we have in MasterCard, which is, I think, a very ambitious program. We have got something called Girls for Tech program, where we have a goal of reaching to about 5 million girls. We've reached about 4 million in about 63 countries, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And think about the effect that has. I mean, it's just not joining the fintech. It's not joining the workplace. But how do you conduct yourself into that in that workplace? What a positive impact that is going to have on these girls and how this will have one a mentee who's successful, think about the cascading effect of that on her peers and how the, those learnings get uh, kind of uh, percolated through the ecosystem that they are operating in. So I think companies have to make sure that gender parity, gender mainstreaming is, yes, an objective, but they also need to ensure that it's done in the right way. I think we're all aware of the gender pay gap, not just in fintech, but across industries. Are there any sort of encouraging signs or steps that you've seen taken to address the problem? Or alternatively, what would you like to see the fintech industry do to address this problem a little more head on? I think in UK, mid to large companies are now required to report their gender pay gap data. You can have equity pay audits. You have access to what you're paying them. You have access to their levels. It's pretty straightforward to normalize, to find the reason for discrepancies so that it can be addressed. Otherwise, you will perpetually be retrocorrecting the disparities. But it's good to fundamentally understand why are these disparities occurring in the first place? And then, of course, normalizing those. It's a huge deal for women. And we are three of us, and I'm sure we have faced that in our professional lives. It is something I think I would love like legislation, frankly, in countries in U.S. or in other large countries. I think we need to have some legislation where, yes, these equities have to be reported and they have to be addressed. Otherwise, something that people kind of very rarely talk about. It's the same for equality and gender diversity. Do we need a quota system to make people take this seriously? It's really unfortunate when you put quotas in because it creates, I think, unnecessary outcomes. But is that what it takes? Because actually it's not happening naturally or it will happen naturally over a very, very elongated period. And similarly with pay gaps, do we need something that's more regulatory in nature to ensure this happens? It's always unfortunate when that is the the last recourse. You always hope that public and private sector could do this themselves and could kind of self-manage through these. But it doesn't always seem to be the case. And therefore, maybe there is an alternative which has financial or other types of consequences. But it does feel like the visibility and awareness, as Rashika said, is there now. But it's so what? Like, I think the, the so what for me is is unclear. So now the whole of the BBC, for example, all knows what each other earns and, and there's been some serious kind of concerns. But how do we fix the systemic issue in a once-off process and stop it from reoccurring as well? But there are a lot of considerations and I guess the, it will take time. But I can certainly say when I post a role, I can tell you now the banding and the range of compensation for that role is irrespective of whether I appoint a male or a female. And so it should be. But I, I know it's certainly not the case for many. Before we wrap up, I wanted to take a moment and give each of you the opportunity to send a message to any, any woman or young woman who may be considering a career in technology. What would you say to them? I would just say that don't let anyone tell you that you cannot succeed in tech or that it's a man's world. 
some of the smartest people that I know are women. The industry needs your creativity, it needs your fresh perspective and your problem-solving skills. I think more now than ever. I think I'd say that don't always think about coming to a technology firm. You need to be able to write code or you need to be a STEM grad. It's great if we can have more girls pursuing mainstream STEM careers. But within any firm, there are a number of other cross-functional roles, be they finance and HR, commercially-based roles, regulatory compliance, that don't require a skill set to be able to write code. I think you've got to be interested in the solutions and the capabilities that the technology firm is offering. But ultimately, don't be put off if it feels too technical, because a lot of what we do is actually about taking technology and digitizing kind of a custom experience and making it much easier and more intuitive for people to use or consume. So if it feels like it might be too, uh, it's too technical for me, don't be put off by that. I'm a marketing grad, I'm non-technical, but there's still opportunities for you in fintech or within a technology organization. And do not fear code. Yes. <laughs> code, is, <laughs> code is not that difficult, you know. Exactly. I love that, Jill. As a marketing grad myself and from an agency background, I fell into fintech a little bit late, but I've really enjoyed it. And I tell people, fintech, isn't that kind of boring? No, this is actually really interesting. I could do fun. I could go sell yogurt or luggage if I wanted to, but I think I'm kind of over fun and I want to do things that are interesting and, and meaningful and relevant. And that's to, to me what keeps me in financial technology. To me, it's interesting and we solve really interesting problems. So I love that. This has been really fun and I've, I've been campaigning for this episode forever. So I'm super excited that we finally got to do this. So thank you for joining me on this. It's been, been a lot of fun. Thank you, Shoban. Thanks, Shoban. I want to say a big thank you to Jill and Rasika for joining us today and sharing how they broke into the industry, as well as the challenges and successes they encountered along the way. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Forward Exchanges, where we're investigating the real driving forces that are modernizing money movement and learning what's building or blocking its momentum around the world. Don't forget to make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also check us out at neom.com forward slash forward exchanges. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Siobhan O'Neill-Schwenk, and this has been Forward Exchanges from Neom. Neom.